Hey, everyone. Welcome to this next episode of Career Changing in Your 20s. This is the podcast where we talk about the ups and downs of career changing in this growth-filled decade of your 20s. And we especially bring on guests with really cool experiences in a lot of different industries, roles, functions, sectors, and hear about their experiences, their big lessons learned, and ultimately their long-term goals. And hopefully they can give some advice that's really helpful for the listeners here. And uh, hopefully people find this as interesting as I do. So today's guest is Jackson. Jackson, maybe you can give a little bit of intro on what you studied in school, what you did after undergrad, and what you're doing now. All of Jackson's views are his own and not reflective of either his current or former employers. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to to be here. You know, longtime listener, first time interview. Um, so <laughs> you got the call. You got the call. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. Sort of my background. I went to Rice University in Houston. I got a degree in earth science with a concentration in geochemistry. I was initially sort of inclined to go into academia, but really decided I wanted to do things a bit faster. So I ended up going to in into strategy and management consulting, UI Parthenon. I was there for just over a year, I would say. And then I switched to a climate tech startup called Watershed, where I've been for over a year now. And Loving it. Nice. Thanks for the intro. Yeah, let's just kick it off. So we've had a lot of other guests also in consulting, but I think it's also really cool to hear these different experiences because everyone goes to so many different places and exit ops, right? After consulting. So why why did you transition to clean tech um, from consulting? Did you know you always wanted to do that in undergrad or yeah, I kind of gave the, the short version before about academia, but the longer version is that I was always interested in climate change and understanding sort of the science behind it, the impacts. And I wanted to tackle that from an academic route. But after kind of getting some experience with academia, dipping my toes in the water, decided it was probably not for me, given some of the dynamics in higher education institutions and how slowly things move. So I decided I wanted to work, but I had never taken an economics class. I didn't know anything about business. So I I thought the best way to kind of learn and learn quickly would be through consulting. So I was able to get an internship, which turned into a job offer. And I worked as a consultant over a year and I enjoyed it, but it was definitely not really what I wanted to do long-term or even medium-term. So I was always building towards that next step. And when the opportunity came up for me to jump into a startup and specifically into a, a climate tech startup, I decided to, to take up on that opportunity. How did how did you find the opportunity? You were looking, they reached out to you. Yeah. I mean, when I was consulting, I was always pushing to take those opportunities related to climate tech or clean tech. So things to do with hydrogen energy, carbon capture, even some of the oil and gas companies and just thinking about how the energy transition impacted them. But it was really sort of the last project that I did into EV charging, where I realized there were so many startups that were really influencing the space. So I started to listen to a few podcasts, read a few newsletters, thinking about in general what's going on right now. And then Watershed specifically sort of came up in a podcast I was listening to where the founder was interviewed. And I thought the mission sounded great. And also what I really appreciate is that you didn't need to have you know, electrical engineering experience. You didn't need to be some mechanical engineer to get into the space. They were looking for people of all sorts of backgrounds. So I applied, um, got the offer and and took it as quickly as I could. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into maybe your advice on if other people want to break into clean tech a little bit later, but maybe give us an idea of exactly or high level what Watershed does and exactly what your specific role in it and why you think 
that's a good fit for you with your background, uh, why you think it's an interesting role, interesting role. And then what kind of roles would that lead to later on down the line in your career? Yeah. So Watershed is essentially a carbon management software. So our customers are companies, so it's B2B SaaS. And what we do is we help our customers really do three things, act, measure, and report. So first, it's typically the measure process. So what is your carbon footprint? Thinking about all the operations, the supply chain, what is the total carbon footprint of the company? Um, We help with reporting. So there are various um, regulatory frameworks as well as voluntary frameworks that we help them with. And finally, there's that act part. So the number one mission is to reduce carbon emissions. And if you can't reduce, then what can you remove either directly through the atmosphere or through some sort of high quality offsets and any clean power programs and, and BPPAs and the sort. So right now I mostly focus on the measure part of it. So I think my role title is sort of carbon data analyst. And what that means, I help our customers use the software and really understand their data, how it's gonna transform into emissions, making sure that process goes smoothly. Right now, that's my focus. I think where that sort of position leads to in the future is one, you have to be really comfortable with the data, really comfortable with emissions. And what that means, like it's not just financials of understanding how money flows around, but it's thinking about how emissions flow around. So you're looking at operations through that perspective. And I think in the future, what that leads to is either within watershed different positions or even at various companies, just thinking about how do your company's operations result in emissions and how can you ultimately reduce them? And that's really where I see myself in a medium or a longer term is, is working towards reducing emissions, not just measuring them. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I also did want to talk about how other companies view like sustainability. But before that, maybe your explanation is really clear, but let's give maybe an example of how a typical company would use watershed or use carbon data management. And how do they, are they hardware product? Are they, are they software product? And then do they report that to government agencies for tax credits or, or do they report it to shareholders that maybe help us walk through a life cycle with a, maybe a specific example? Yeah. So I think the typical climate journey of a company isn't necessarily linear. So people will enter at various points along the journey. Some people act before mm-hmm. they really start measuring or they measure just so they can report. But I think a typical lifestyle does typically start with measure. So Watershed has all sorts of customers in different industries, but I'll just take a general one, for example, say a food and beverage company. So Sort of the first thing we'll do is they'll measure it. So we'll take certain information like financials, operations, like buildings, square footage, energy usage, and we'll turn it into emissions using the software and we'll be able to make decisions based off of that. So we'll see that maybe their biggest office in California isn't actually where they should be focusing their attentions in where to reduce their emissions because maybe a slightly smaller office, but in West Virginia, where the grid is a lot more coal and gas heavy and therefore more emissive, is actually where they should be focusing their attention. So they take this data that's been given from the software and they'll make a decision off of it. And they can model those decisions mm-hmm. as well in the software. So if they say, great, if I actually take all of my West Virginia locations and turn them into 100% solar energy, what does that do to my carbon footprint? They'll be able to model, mm-hmm. that, model that decision out, ultimately make the decision either with Watershed's help using Rex, which are different clean energy tracking platform that's recognized throughout the world, or they could do PPAs or just contract directly with the utility using green power program. And then they'll need to report it, right? So in the US, 
reporting it is largely voluntary. So if they're here, they'll probably do some sort of voluntary framework. But if they're in the EU or UK, they may be required to do that. So replace West Virginia with Northern Ireland mm-hmm. or something like that. And they'll, they'll have to mm-hmm. actually report that. So I don't want to get too much into like exactly this company and the value prop, but I'm curious, maybe just one more question for context is what do companies do now and why can't they measure and report? Is it just the knowledge isn't there, the infrastructure isn't there. Uh, what makes it so hard for companies to do this today? Yeah, what's interesting is that carbon accounting in general has actually been around for a while. Um, since the early 2000s, at least, there have been environmental consulting firms mm. out there doing this work, which has largely been through you know, Excel spreadsheets, consultants working for four to six months to do this for a company. And they may not do it every year, given the, the capital and people intensive nature. I would say in the last three or four years, it's really turned into a software play and people are looking at either the consultants using software, or they're just pure software plays like Watershed, where you can try to automate a lot of these processes, take in the data and Im- immediately turn it into emissions. Mm-hmm. I think you're right in what's stopping people from just doing this themselves is how difficult it is. It's actually very difficult. I think you'll see some folks talk about where they can just turn emissions, turn a company into emissions just based off two or three numbers. And maybe that'll give a good average, but it doesn't give you very actionable insight. And that actual insight is really what's valuable. And there's knowledge that's stopping that. Also, carbon science is evolving constantly. Emissions factors to be used, different methods and methodologies to calculate emissions. And staying on top of that can be really hard for someone that where it isn't their full-time job to do it. So I think software companies like Watershed are emerging to kind of take on some of that burden and really create repeatable processes that also contain a lot of climate intelligence within them. Got it. I think it's important to know, and maybe we touched on this a little bit before, but Watershed is a startup, right? So if we look at the entire clean tech industry in general, I want to hear your take on it because I know some folks who do sustainability in kind of the large organizations, right? So in the in the large tech companies or other Fortune 500s, they have branches of ESG sustainability groups. So what's your kind of take on someone in their 20s wanting to be in clean tech? What are the pros and cons of being at a startup where, especially for you, you actually probably get exposed to a lot of these large companies as well in your work versus the work you would do at those Fortune 500s in this this realm, like pros and cons of on the startup versus large company for, for clean tech dynamic. I'd be happy to talk about that dynamic. From the start, I want to acknowledge that I'm coming at it from the perspective of someone who's in the industry in a startup who's trying to do well in that, specifically carbon accounting. So I think climate tech is used as sort of an industry term, but it's really different. Within that, you can have software companies like Watershed, but you can also have really pure hardware companies that are building things that are trying mm-hmm. to do different ways that are decarbonizing the grid. And I want to acknowledge, I think the pathways for those two and the experience of those kinds of companies can differ, even though they're all under the sort of climate tech umbrella. But that said, I think you're right that there is a strong dynamic between sort of big companies having their own little climate divisions versus climate specific companies. You're right that one of the biggest dynamics is sort of the resources that are available when you're at a a climate-focused company, which pure numbers-wise, I think are mostly startups now, that is the Mm -hmm. pure focus of the company, right? It's the goal, there's a mission, and everyone's driving towards that and aligned towards that. And every step you take is to that goal of of typically sort of helping the world get to net zero by, by 2050 or earlier. And within a specific company, that might be your goal. 
but you need to deal with all these other teams that have other goals too, whether it's profit, mm -hmm. revenue, growth, and you have to also deal with all the sort of red tape and processes that go into those corporations, which, which are there for a good reason, right? But at the same time, it does slow things down. And so the mm -hmm. climate emergency is something that, you know, some people say it's too late, but really action needs to be taken now and not later. So I speed is, is a key part of that. I think if you're in your twenties and you're looking to get into the space and you want to move fast, I think typically those sorts of startups or climate focused companies are the way to kind of maximize your own individual impact. But at the same time, I think anyone that's interested should always get into the space wherever they can, whether it's in your current company, just volunteering for a few things on the local basis or trying to push your company towards certain goals and, and certain operational metrics, or if it's fully transitioning your role, I think every sort of person has a pace to play and it's not competitive. I think one of the key things in sort of the climate tech industry, which is different from others, is that Yes, you're competing. Like at the end of the day, you want to be mm -hmm. the number one company in your space, right? But at the same time, everyone's working towards that goal and there's sort of shared sense of it's not A or B, it's A and B. And both companies need to succeed. And whether it's the, the climate group in the Fortune 500 or a climate specific company, both need to work together to drive the world towards a net zero emissions. So I think that's helpful to understand kind of how people can break in and, and what are the options out there. But let's maybe take a step back and and talk about what are the typical reasons people even go into clean tech. And I know you mentioned a little bit about your passion for the space in the beginning from undergrad, but I'm sure there's a lot of different perspectives out there. So I want to hear your take, having been in the industry for a bit, on, on why people go into the space, why it's important to people. If you think you're interested, like how would you develop that interest into a full-on or, or a more developed passion? Yeah, so when you're thinking of clean tech, climate tech, and there's sort of a difference in that, there are almost two waves as to when this is really popular, both from a demand side of, of companies wanting to do work and supply side of, of people wanting to work in this space. I think there is a sort of clean tech wave in, from 2006, 2011-ish, where there is this big push towards sort of renewables and a few other solutions. And, and ultimately, I think due to economic conditions, it, it didn't really pan out as much. And, and now we're in this sort of clean tech 2.0 or, or climate tech wave that really started after the Paris climate accords and agreements in 2015 that saw this just big demand both both from governments and companies but also so many people saying I really want to do this and in my own experience at, at watershed and just talking to people I do think you see a lot of of younger people who are on their first second third fourth job and just really want to get into this space to make the world a better place and you, know, you need to make a living mm -hmm. as well, but at the same time, they want to have a good social impact, a good environmental impact. And you see a lot of people coming in with that passion. You also see, I think, a lot of people in their later career, typically really parents, even who just had kids, and they're thinking about what are the world, what is the world they're going to leave behind? What's the world that they're going to leave to their children? And we see so many parents applying and working in the industry that are thinking that oh, I really need to do something to make this better. And, and I have these skills built up over 10, 20 years, and how am I going to apply them to this new industry? And they do it in their own company, and they do it in startups, but they really want to get involved from that mission. At the same time that I'm talking about the mission, I think we also have to recognize like we live in a society that's built on capitalism. People want to make money and need to make money yeah. to, to make a living. And at the end of the day, this is a really strong business opportunity 
I don't think anyone in this space would disagree that there's an opportunity here. And when you talk to all the different sort of economic pundits, there's no denying that I think climate tech at the end of the day is going to be a huge market, both in the US and globally. And, and even Larry Fink has a sort of iconic quote about the next trillion dollar startup is going to be from climate tech. And I think there are very few people that can disagree with Larry Fink. And at the end of the day, um, yeah. there is that strong opportunity, both within existing companies and, and with net new companies. So that kind of leads into the next question is from the people side, people are getting more passionate about that. And from the the government or venture capital or industry corporate side, as you said, there was a trend where 2008, 2011, it was kind of being talked about, but there has been a really more recent wave push. It seems like they're taking it a lot more seriously now and investing the resources, but maybe we can talk a little bit about what's driving these companies to do it because I think the traditional trade-off is that sustainability, things like that are more expensive, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a cost. It's tough to invest in this space, but, and, and that's why we see tax incentives and things like that. So how quickly are these organizations uh, really pushing and how seriously are they taking it? Yeah, I definitely want to speak to your broader question, but I feel like I have to, have to comment on what you said about climate sort of being a, a net cost center, right? Like a net like sunk cost. And I think that's something mm -hmm. that's really changing with these days, especially as renewables are becoming more cost efficient than any other power source. It, there are a lot of opportunities mm -hmm. for climate smart decisions to also be net revenue gaining decisions. And, and you can see that either through sourcing through solar, which is going to be cheaper than coal in a lot of areas, or whether it's making climate a part of your brand and gaining new consumers who really care about this. I think you're seeing that the average return on investment for climate decisions is is going up and up. And it depends on the specific situation. But that's one thing that's really driving these companies is that they're recognizing this is the opportunity. And if it's going to be a multi-trillion dollar market, they're going to want to get their piece of it, right? So they're going to hmm. make either new divisions or they're going to change some of their practices to be this. There's also a big risk sort of element to it. At the end of the day, like climate change is a risk to be factored into financial decisions. And that's something that you have to think of, especially if you're a company with sort of complex supply chains, international supply chains, the more climate risks you're exposed to, the greater sort of incentive you have to either reduce the risk in your own supply chain or try to contribute to the reduction of the impacts of climate change, whether it be mitigation or reducing your emissions. Those are sort of some intrinsic motivators. I think there's also a lot of external pressure, depending on, on where you draw the line of internal and external, but Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stakeholder pressure. I think we talked about that with employees and how they're pushing their companies to make action on this. And, and I think you see, especially with Gen Z going into the job market, they look at things like DNI as well as environmental kind of responsibility as one of the top drivers for decision making for where they want to work. There's also stakeholder pressure from consumers, right? When you go to the supermarket and you go to the go to mm -hmm. like a big retail outlet. You're seeing what is the more sustainable choice for me here? What's, what's the sticker that tells me that this is an environmentally conscious decision? There's also stakeholder pressure from shareholders, whether they're activist shareholders or sort of longer term thinking about risk shareholders. They realize their companies need to make smart decisions here and they're putting pressure on CEOs to, to really be smart about what's happening with climate. There's also, I think, a big driver around regulation. So some markets like the UK and the EU, it's already required. You, you have to report your emissions depending on the size of the company. And 
they're taking it seriously, the government is, and that's from a variety of factors, right? But if the government's taking it seriously and they're requiring public companies and even some large private companies to report your emissions and make action on it, you have to do it no matter what. But outside of the EU and UK, which typically lead on this, even within Canada, the US, China, there is either current or pending legislation that's really going to pressure. Specifically, there's an SEC rule that's going to come out um, most likely this year that's going to force sort of large companies in the US, public companies, to report their emissions and, and make plans on it. So at the end of the day, I think there's both internal and external pressure, and they have to take it seriously. And mm-hmm. it's not just sort of a, a fad. It's not going to go out with the next presidency or anything like that. It's, it's definitely a shift, yeah. I think, in the world economics and the world status quo. And if you don't make that shift now, you're going to get left behind and you're going to suffer economically for it. Yeah, I think that's a really important call. So I'm glad you called out my kind of mention of that trade-off, right, of cost or thinking of it as a cost center, right? Because that's probably the more traditional or stereotypical view of this, right? Maybe a decade ago when this is first developing. But I think what you're saying is we're at the beginning of an inflection point where the regulation is still a huge driver as it has been, but we're starting to see economically some of these little pockets of actually better performance, better better profit, uh, better margins, right? If we if we make these kind of key decisions that are both economic as well as sustainable. So that's, I think that's really interesting to flesh out, even though, as you mentioned, the regulation is still a very big key driver and it probably will continue to be. But as the technology and as these you know startups get bigger and people start getting more into the space, there's what you're saying is a more also natural and kind of a momentum shift as well. So I think, yeah, that, that's a really good overview of the industry, your key takeaways there, and also your learnings from the job you currently do. And so what's next, I guess, for you, Jackson, in your, let's say, short, medium term, and then longer term, like, where do you see yourself? It's such a typical interview question, but I think generally people think about that all the time. And it would be really curious to see what you think or how you've reflected on your own life. Yeah. I never envisioned that I would work at a startup. I think I'm a fairly risk averse person. So I never thought I would be at a startup, but here I am over one year later. So I think in the short to medium term, I envision staying where I am and continuing to build the company and and increase our impact. I think what especially helps is that my company specifically, but really a lot of these startups, the climate tech startups are very remote friendly and that allows me to go where I want to go, where I need to go and continue to work for the company and Mm. drive towards that mission. I think when I'm considering the longer term implications, I want to be on the operational side. There's that saying, right? You can't manage what you don't measure. So I'm really helping folks measure Mm. now. I think at some point in the medium and long term, I want to shift to that management part, whether it's with Watershed or at a specific company, ultimately, I want to be driving reductions for companies, creating that operational change, helping influence those decisions, as well as you know influencing whatever removal options are required. There's a lot of work to be done in just a few companies even. So around 100 companies are responsible for about 71% of the world's emissions. So it'd be really great to be able to scale my impact by being in one of those hundred companies or just working with one of those hundred companies to start reducing those emissions and getting them to accept the status quo and and make a decision. So that's what I hope to do. I'm currently doing that now, right? With Watershed's customers and scaling up the the impact is really core for me. And then 
what I want to hear is maybe your advice for someone who was in your shoes in consulting or undergrad right now. And you already talked a little bit about how to break into this space, but and and how you broke in, right? You read a lot of books or podcasts and, and kind of networked as well into your space. So would you advise them to do the same thing? Do you have any recommendations for what content they should look at? I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. I think what's so key in this space is passion and also being knowledgeable. So a lot of people have passion and very few people know a lot about the space. So if you can teach yourself and start to learn things, then I think it opens a lot of doors for you. Although we've been talking a lot about how companies get funded and and there's a lot of money in the space in the day, there aren't that many job opportunities compared to some other industries. So having that combination Mm -hmm. of passion and sort of knowledge and intelligence, I think can really help, especially my exposure to people so far has been very few people have experience in the space. You meet some people who are around in Queen Tech 1.0 or they were doing solar before or something, but most people come with very different and various backgrounds. But what unites us is we care so much about this and we are so interested in learning. So to answer your question about like how did I kind of learn about this, obviously I have my degree, which is helpful in understanding sort of the science behind it, but that doesn't really help you with the economics or the business or where the industry is now. So to do that, I think there were a few sort of things that I used to read and listen to and continue to to keep up with. So a couple of book recs I would have are sort of Speed and Scale by John Doerr. I think it's a great book. It's really helpful. It lays out a very operational plan of how the planet can just get to net zero and reduce emissions. Minor disclosure that um, he's an investor in Watershed, so I might be biased in that. Another mm-hmm. book that I think is great and maybe a really good intro if you're more to fiction, science fiction, is Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. A great sort of what if around climate. And the last one, which is I think climate adjacent, but really influenced how I think about the problem and how I think about the industry growing is Donut Economics, which is both a theory and a book by Kate Rauer. And yeah, I think that's really interesting and, and a good intro. And from there, you can go read more either specific things or even really like science fiction to just help with the passion. I also have to say not a book, but a good newsletter. Climate Tech BC really helps you keep up to date with the latest trends in the industry, fundings, companies, a lot of job opportunities there for anyone that's passionate and interested. And I am a podcast person. I like to listen to podcasts. You probably hear this from everyone who's in the space, but how to save mm-hmm. planet is a great sort of intro, but specifically, I think more detail focus like the carbon copy, the big switch, what it takes, catalyst, and the energy gain, all really focused on the energy transition, climate tech, what are the trends, what's important, and really enjoyable and interesting podcasts. Got it. Okay, so I'll definitely include these books and podcasts in the show notes for everyone. And I think that's really helpful, really insightful. I mean, there's so much content out there to have someone who's already digged through that and will it down to kind of the most insightful ones. Like that's, that's really useful. So thanks everyone for listening to this great episode with Jackson on clean tech and how and why he transitioned into it. What his current startup does and a brief overview of the industry and how startups versus industry conglomerates are approaching energy transitioning. And lastly, how he plans to continue to make a huge impact in clean tech throughout his career. So, of course, if you have any questions or feedback or want a certain topic talked about on this podcast, please email careerchangingin20s at gmail.com. Please follow and rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And cheers. Happy listening. <laughs>